This Word on Fire Minute is brought to you by Advantage Futures. As Catholics, we must take advantage of new technology to spread the faith. Wordonfire.org is on the front lines, featuring the work of one of the church's best messengers, Father Robert Barron. At wordonfire.org, you'll find inspirational podcasts, videos, audio sermons, books, DVDs, and the Catholicism Project. It is one of the most ambitious efforts ever to promote the Catholic faith to the world. Catholicism is Father Barron's global documentary series, filmed in high definition and now in production for TV and DVD. Father Barron's series will illustrate the beauty and depth of the church and explain the Catholic faith on our own terms. It will be an exciting new way for families, parishes, and schools to teach Catholicism. Preview the production, join our email list, and contribute to the Catholicism Project at wordonfire.org. Become part of the story today. This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of Love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us, so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. So friends, we come once more to what's been called the Preacher's Nightmare. That's the Feast of the Holy Trinity, Trinity Sunday. But you know, it shouldn't be seen that way, because as I've often said, every Sunday is Trinity Sunday. Sunday. The Trinity is the very heart and soul of our Christian belief. It's not some arcane puzzle for theologians to fuss about. In fact, everything in Christian life revolves around the Trinity and returns to the Trinity. So what in the world is this belief? And where did it come from? This belief that the one God subsists in three distinct persons. Well, I would suggest we go back to our Jewish roots. Go back to the sixth chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, and we find that famous prayer called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is Lord alone. There it is, the central characteristic belief of ancient Israel. The unity of God was everything. It was the center of Israelite life and belief. And proclaiming it was their great spiritual gift to the world. Now, Jesus was a Jew. All his disciples were Jews. All of the first Christians were Jews. Paul was a Jew. They all had this belief in their bones. For every one of them, the Shema was the central cornerstone belief. If you suggested to any of these figures that there were multiple gods, they they would have been outraged at the blasphemy of it. But here's the thing now. The first Christians experienced in Jesus something strange. On the one hand, he described himself as the one sent by the Father, the one he called Abba. Well, I mean, this could be true of of any of the prophets or patriarchs or great figures of Israel. 
you know, so far so ordinary. Jeremiah could have said, I was sent by the Father. Isaiah could have said it. Abraham could have said it. But then this complicating fact. Jesus also spoke and acted in the very person of God. And I've rehearsed this for you many times, but just move through the Gospels. You see it over and over again. My son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, who can say that but God alone? And Jesus says it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, who could say that coherently except the one who is himself the eternal word of God? Unless you love me more than your mother and father, more than your very life. Well, I mean, how could a mere human say something like that? And all of this was ratified beyond their wildest expectations by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It ratified the truth of what he said. So, the first Christians knew about Abba, God the Father, the one who sent Jesus, and also they knew about his son, Jesus. Different figures, one did the sending, one was sent, and yet both are divine. Then things got even more complicated, because in the wake of the resurrection, they experienced the inrushing of the Holy Spirit, this paraclete or advocate whom Jesus had promised to send them from himself and the Father, a helper for whom they were told to wait. Well, this Spirit lifted them up, enabled them to carry out their work as followers of Jesus, and more to it, this Spirit divinized them, made them participants in the divine life. So here's the thing. These pious Jews, who wouldn't dream of surrendering the truth of the Shema. They were monotheists to their bones. They had to make sense somehow of Abba, Jesus, and their Holy Spirit. All distinct from each other, and yet all divine. Yet all the one God. St. John, in that magnificent first letter he wrote, gave, I think, the richest biblical expression to this dilemma when he commented, very simply, God is love. If that's true, that love isn't just something God does or an attribute that God has, but what God is, then God must be a player, must be a play of lover, Abba, the beloved, Jesus, and the love they share, the Holy Spirit. Okay, that I think is the richest biblical expression of this Trinitarian faith. But this insight, this dilemma, was bequeathed to the early church. And some of the most brilliant minds in that world wrestled with it mightily, trying to understand how the God of the Shema, the one God, could subsist in these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, as they wrestled, Some tended in the direction of unity. They stressed the truth of the Shema, and they accordingly underplayed the real difference of the divine persons. You can find this now in some early theology. These were the modalists or Sabalians. I've got my theology professor cap on right now. Others tended in the other direction, emphasizing the difference of the persons and underplaying too much the unity of God. Well, these people became effectively tritheists. They believed in three gods. 
back and forth this argument went for many centuries until geniuses like Hilary of Poitiers, Gregory of Nazianzus, and especially Augustine of Hippo found probably the best resolution. I think I've shared with you before Augustine's famous psychological analogy for the Trinity. He said, just as our minds can form an image of themselves, and once they form that image, they fall in love. He called it men's mind, notitia sui, self-knowledge, and amor sui, self-love. So, he said, the Father is the primordial mind of God. The Son is the logos of the Father, the act by which the Father knows himself. When the Father and Son gaze at each other, they fall in love. And that mutual love is the Holy Spirit. Pretty good. Pretty good analogy. The one God, he's not split into three gods, but yet subsisting in these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay. I'm going to keep my theologian's cap on a little bit, because why not? If you can't be a theologian on the Feast of Trinity Sunday, when can you be? I want to bring you back to a key moment in the history of doctrine and the history of Christianity. It's a moment that we remember every Sunday when we recite the creed. I remember some years ago when I was in the parish, a man came up to me, and he was a very bright guy and involved in our religious education. And he said, you know, Father, we recite that Nicene Creed every Sunday, and we say, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being, you know, all that stuff. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, well, does that really mean anything? What is that language all about? Well, it's all about this doctrine of the Trinity. And what I gave him was a little quick history of the problem that gave rise to that language. Let me share that with you now. In the early 4th century, so the early 300s, there was a priest of the Diocese of Alexandria in Egypt by the name of Arius. Arius was, by all accounts, a very handsome man, a very effective preacher. He was even a songwriter and a singer. And Arius proposed a theory for dealing with this dilemma, this problem of the Trinity. He said, the one God is beyond speech, beyond time and space, supreme, absolute. The Shema is right. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is God alone. There's one high God. But this God produced, Arius said, as his first creature, his highest creature, what the Bible calls the Logos, or the Word. It's this Word, the firstborn of all creatures, that became incarnate in Jesus. Hmm. The theory of Arius solved a lot of problems. It preserved the unity of God, and it paid very high homage to Jesus. It said, well, he's, he's worthy of, of very high praise because in him is incarnate this very, very high creature. It seemed to get us off of the horns of the dilemma of God being one and three. In fact, it made so much sense, and Arius was so good at propagating it, that it began to spread throughout Alexandria, then throughout Egypt, and then throughout much of the Eastern Empire. But, but, it was opposed by those in the church who said, you know, it just doesn't honor what the New Testament talks about, namely the fullness of Jesus' divinity. 
Well, the argument became so heated and so divisive that the emperor intervened. The emperor was Constantine, the first one who, who gave wide permission to the practice of Christianity. Constantine intervened. He called for a council to be held, and he wanted it to be near his capital city of Constantinople. And so bishops and theologians gathered from all over the empire at a little town called Nicaea in the year 325, and they debated Arianism. And in a decisive victory, they came out against the Alexandrian theologian. They said that the Logos, which became flesh in Jesus, was, and now here's this language, that we repeat every Sunday. They said the Logos was God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Who is Jesus, therefore? Jesus is God. Other than the Father who sent him, yes, but one in essence with him. They clarified that he was, and we say this every week, don't we? He was begotten, not made. In other words, he's not a creature. He came forth from the Father. He was begotten, but not made in the manner of a creature. And then they use that famous term, homoousios, with the Father. We repeat that now in our English translation, one in being with the Father. Now there it is, friends. Two separate persons, Father and Son, but yet one in being. The Council of Nicaea, over and against Arius, affirms the full divinity of Jesus. And of course, by implication, the Holy Spirit is the love that links the Father and the Son. Now, why does this matter for us so much? It matters because if Jesus is not divine, he doesn't save us. If Jesus is simply a creature, no matter how high, Arius says he's the greatest of creatures, the highest of creatures, but if he's only a creature... He doesn't save us. He doesn't divinize us. He doesn't draw us into the divine life. What they saw at Nicaea was our salvation depends, listen now, upon the Trinity. That the one God has so embraced us in Christ, the Father sending the Son in the Holy Spirit, that we now become participants in the divine life. And that's why these words of Nicaea matter so much. That's why this feast of the Holy Trinity matters so much. The Trinity is the doctrinal expression, if you want, of the fact that we are dealing with a saving God. Please keep that in mind as you celebrate this great feast of the Holy Trinity. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. Pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. 